Welcome to the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Chris Tucker from the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and founding editor of the podcast. Today, we're discussing outcomes and return to sport rates for biceps tenodesis in overhead athletes. I'm honored to welcome back to the podcast for this discussion, a good friend of mine, Dr. Brian Waterman, professor of orthopedic surgery, chief and fellowship director of sports medicine at Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and current ANA annual meeting program chair. Dr. Waterman was a lead author on the article titled High Rate of Return to Sporting Activity Among Overhead Athletes with Subpectoral Biceps Tenodesis for Type 2 Slap Tear, which is in press for publication in the Arthroscopy Journal. His co-authors include John Newgren, Catherine Richardson, and Tony Romeo. Brian, congrats on your work. Welcome to the podcast. Chris, thank you so much for having me. This is uh, this is officially my three-peat, so I, I, I'm really honored to be back to discuss a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. Well, we're excited to have you back, and I always enjoy talking to you about pretty much anything related to orthopedics. So let's get underway uh, with this today's topic. Could you just start off by giving our listeners some background on your interest in this specific slap tear issue and your motivation for conducting this particular study? Sure. First off, I just want to acknowledge the efforts of, of my co-authors, um, John Newgren and uh, and Catherine, uh, both of which were really instrumental in, in culling this data together. And then, uh, obviously, my mentor and uh, thought leader, Dr. Romeo, for, for really sharing his body of, of work and allowing us to, to collate his patients and, and look at their outcomes. But Outside of that, uh, I went to fellowship after being several years in practice in the military, and that's the background you and I both share. Uh, and we saw at that point in time in the um, late 2000s a significant amount of slap tears, some of which we probably were overdiagnosing and some of which were real and just didn't really have a good sense of how they should be treated. It was a fairly new surgical procedure, um, and there's been a lot of innovation since. But at that point in time, I'd kind of concocted the idea of doing a randomized controlled trial, people under 30, looking at biceps tenodesis versus flap repair, and uh, really wanted to see how we could facilitate a better return to duty rate, because uh, very often we would see these individuals come back and that experience has been reflected in the work of Preventure and others. And so I was really interested in, in these, these small tears uh, and how they could have such significant repercussions on, on form and function in kind of the warrior athletes. That has carried on as I've made the transition to the civilian uh, side. And uh, I think the overhead athlete is really the next frontier for figuring out how we can best optimize our our clinical and functional outcomes uh, when treating uh, these slap lesions. So before we get into the actual study results, I was hoping you could do a brief overview for us on the pathophysiology of the shoulder in the overhead athlete. What makes these athletes different and what goes into your workup for the specific overhead athlete to account for these mechanisms of injury and any specialized requirements that they have for their recovery and their specific return to sporting? Yeah, great question. Obviously, first and foremost, you must acknowledge there's a high degree of variability in normal and pathoanatomy within our overhead athlete patients. If you just look at the general population, there's upwards of 73% that have this 
sublabral sulcus, which is a normal kind of synovialized clean layer that extends further medially. Additionally, you have a, a high preponderance of these anterior superior labral uh, variants, and that can include both the sublabral hole or foramen, as well as the Buford complex. And in some estimates, that can approach up to one in four individuals. So when you take that into um, consideration, obviously, it can be very hard to delineate what those labral variants are. And, uh, and then also the adaptive changes that occur within these athletes. We know from the work of Dr. Verma and, and several of our team physicians within baseball that um, these uh, adaptive changes, both in the superior labrum as well as the posterior superior rotator cuff, can be quite prevalent and approach upwards of 60 to 70 percent. So when we evaluate these athletes that have um, either unstable or symptomatic uh, slap tears, I think it's really important to delineate the history. Um, when you look at these individuals, getting a sense for their position, often uh, there's exposure to, to pitching, and uh, um, the duration of symptoms can be important. The types of symptoms, where they're located, trying to define whether it's more deep-seated uh, discomfort or does it extend down in the anterior biceps. If you can tease out whether there is associated cuff, subacromial, or AC joint pathology. And then really, the type of slap lesions we see generally fall into one of three buckets. The first of which you and I have seen a lot of, it's more of the degenerative type tears, and, and those probably can be managed in very self-limited fashion. There's also those acute traumatic lesions that occur when you fall into a, a semi-abducted or forward flexed arm. And then there's the other one that we probably most commonly see in our overhead athlete population, which is kind of that attritional detachment that's more chronic in nature that occurs with overhead throwing uh, or overhead lifting activity. When we look at this, we really need to distill in our minds what the role of the biceps and the labrum are. Uh, I think that this helps to, to create a sense of, of what our options are. At a baseline level, the biceps is really important for humeral head depression and probably centering the uh, humeral head from A to P. There can also be some element of dynamization of the superior labrum with, uh, with activation of the biceps. And, uh, and so that really helps to inform your treatment strategy. When you see these athletes in clinic, it's really important to take a holistic evaluation of them. You want to have them take off their shirt to assess for scapular motion. You want to look at, uh, overall motion uh, arc as well as external and internal rotation and compare it to their non-throwing side. You want to look at their core and hip strength and the mobility there. Uh, specifically as it relates to their throwing motion, you want to look at hip shoulder separation, endurance, ground reactive forces if you have the biomechanical data available to you. And then obviously you really want to, to uh, establish some sort of track record of how this has changed over time. Um, that's just a brief overview of how we look at these individuals outside of the, the uh, shoulder-specific exam, which, as you know, is uh, is an amalgamation of really a lot of different uh, superior labral and bicep testing to try to tease out and uh, and limit the amount of false positives we get. Sure, this is definitely a uh, a wide spectrum of disease uh, etiology, as you described eloquently, and uh, it's a difficult uh, clinical 
uh, problem to sort through. So I think you laid out a really nice foundation for us to have this discussion. I was hoping we could move into treatment options. And if you could describe for us, once we establish the diagnosis of an unstable slap tear in the overhead athlete, could you tell us what the options for treatment are for those particular individuals and then why you decided to investigate the subpectoral biceps tenodesis procedure for this study? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we need to really um, lay out up front here is there's a distinct difference between the management of our recreational athletes, our weekend warriors, and just our general population in terms of biceps labral pathology and the overhead athlete, particularly the elite or competitive overhead athlete with a focus on predominantly baseball, but other sports such as volleyball, tennis, et cetera. Uh, these individuals require unique consideration because as it stands, probably the rates of failure, uh, and that can mean a number of different things, persistent pain, limitations in range of motion, inability to return to function, can be quite high. If you look at the data, it suggests that well, maybe at least three to four out of 10 will, will not return despite our, our best efforts, surgically or non-surgically. And so when you look at the options, very often you're looking at non-operative management as your first-line treatment. And uh, we really need to, to figure out what's been done in advance of their evaluation with us and uh, then make a determination of where we might intervene. But a period of rest uh, to calm down the inflammation, uh, use of anti-inflammatories, injections, and then implementing some element of return to throwing or batting or other activity as that painful uh, symptom subside. Uh, I really think there's a lot of value in ultrasound-guided injections and, and evaluation, so I use that quite liberally. As you get to failure of conservative measures and, and inability to, to move the needle and progress, then you start looking at getting advanced imaging, such as an MRI, and, and really laying out up front, again, the, the high preponderance of, of pathoanatomy that occurs in an in elite-level thrower or overhead athlete. And from there, obviously, you think about the three main categories of treatment. It's the more limited labral debridement approach, if it is a true symptomatic uh, tear. There's the uh, slap repair, which has undergone a lot of uh, evolution in our techniques over time, and hopefully we can get to that. And then talk about primary treatment of the biceps tendon uh, along the way. I think that in this patient population, historically, it has been a discussion about uh, superior labral debridement and repair, but there's been a growing body of, of both uh, low-level evidence data as well as other thought leaders that have considered, is there a role for treatment of, um, of these lesions and, and particularly those with biceps uh, provocative symptoms, uh, treating those individuals with a biceps tenodesis uh, with uh, good rates of success. And so what we wanted to do is really look critically at, at our data in a carefully selected patient subset and to see if we could get reproducible um, success. It was a wonderful segue into what I wanted to discuss next, which was the stated purpose of your study, which was to investigate the functional and athletic outcomes after these primary subpectoral biceps tenodesis in these overhead athletes. Can you just review your study for us now? how many patients were involved, what sports did they play, and then what were your key findings? It's amazing to look at 
how prevalent slap repairs were when you and I were in training and how common they are now. I can assure you that, that less than five to 10 of my patients a year are an isolated slap tear. It's just a very, very uncommon case. It's kind of like the unicorn of our arthroscopy cases. And uh, and so what I really wanted to do is to look at a cleaner body of data and uh, those individuals that didn't have associated pathology, um, such as uh, 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 rotator cuff repair, subacromial decompression, uh, AC joint pathology. And uh, I also wanted to look at a high-functioning patient subset, those involved with um, uh, elite competitive athletics, and that includes competition at a collegiate level, semi-professional level, professional. And uh, thankfully, Dr. Romeo was gracious enough to allow us to use his patient subset. And despite looking at patients over an eight to nine year time frame during which he was a, uh, I would say, a, a distinct leader in the field on this treatment, both slap repair and tenodesis, we were only able to generate about 22 individuals um, for this study. We obviously had a consistent surgical technique, and, and that was a, a subpectral bisubstenedesis with a peak interference screw. Uh, and we had a very uniform uh, rehabilitation protocol. And then what we obtained and compared ultimately over time was to look at uh, both self-reported pain and uh, patient satisfaction by way of the SANE score, and then looking at post-operative and Job uh, orthopedic clinic uh, scores in order to assess patient satisfaction and performance. We looked at several different clinical variables to include range of motion, uh, both uh, at the side and, and in a throwing position. And then ultimately the, the biggest litmus test in all this is their ability to return to their prior level of play and any uh, limiting factors that were included therein. When I read studies, particularly ones like yours, I'm always interested when I'm looking at the inclusion and the exclusion criteria. And I acknowledge that your group decided to have really strict criteria investigating, as you said, only these elite level overhead athletes. Interestingly, you specifically excluded even recreational, intramural, or club level sporting involvement. So like you said, the strictness of your inclusion criteria was reflected by the fact that over a nine-year study period for Dr. Romeo, who, like you said, was probably a fairly prominent, you know, referral practice, only generated 22 patients, which only 16 of which completed your study. I'm just curious to hear what your thoughts are on focusing on the elite athlete, and this is truly elite athletes, and how that translates into external validity of the study findings. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on caring for that subset of that high level of athlete when in reality, the majority of our patients aren't elite level athletes. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely great question. And just to, to lend a little bit more description to the actual uh, demographic of this study as well as the findings, uh, these were overhead athletes from a, a fair amount of different sports subsets, and we made a determination individually based on uh, whether we would consider these individuals overhead athletes based on their position, their sporting involvement, and level of activity. 
and a broader majority, upwards of, of 56 percent, were, were baseball or softball athletes. The average age was 21 years, and upwards of 94 percent had involvement of their dominant extremity, uh, which are all important variables for you to consider. Additionally, we looked at uh, over a uh, four and a half year time frame uh, with some variability uh, based on the patient population. And of these, uh, what we found was is that uh, the average VAS pain score uh, significantly reduced from an average of 4.4 at the time of surgery to 1.7 at uh, final post-operative uh, follow-up. And that doesn't, did include two individuals that had some element of persistent pain. We also were able to show vast improvements, clinically significant outcomes in, in the SANE score, which improved from uh, about 55 to 76. And then we looked at the final KJOC score, uh, which is uh, relevant to that uh, elite throwing overhead patient population. And that average was 74, which is pretty consistent with uh, what you see in the injured shoulder or post-operative shoulder thinking that anything greater than 90 is generally considered what is normal for a healthy overhead uh, pitching athlete. Probably the biggest finding of this study was that we, at an average of four and uh, 4.1 months postoperatively, we were able to get about 81.3% of our patients back to their previous level of activity. That's an important characteristic. So obviously, you think about return to play, which is just getting back for one game or one competition and then returning back to their prior level of activity, which is no small feat when you're dealing with superior labral injury. Some additional context is we also looked at range of motion just to make sure that uh, there weren't any negative uh, attributes to uh, motion. And uh, what we showed is, is that uh, there was generally no difference in external rotation uh, or internal rotation. There was a small, probably not clinically significant difference in, in overall abduction uh, but it did not seem to affect overhead activity. Now to your original question is, how does this affect our external validity? Well, it's really hard to tease out what's going on with these athletes in our treatment if we don't really uh, cull this, this, this high-performing subset of patients. Uh, very often, we're considering individuals that um, uh, have very modest functional demands. One of the initial studies that got me interested in this topic in general was, was Pascal uh, Boileau's uh, discussion about flap repair versus tenodesis in his patient population. But the average age was about, you know, somewhere around the late 30s and, uh, and then the early 50s for flap repair and tenodesis. So I, I think that in this patient population, we have a little bit more equipoise when it comes to what is the ideal treatment. With most of our population, I think of, of uh, uh, colleague surgeons leaning more towards debridement versus repair. Um, so I think that this is uh, just another small patient series that falls along that of the folks from NYU and Vail in uh, letting credence to the potential merits of biceps tenodesis. Now it's up to you and I and, and the broader community to try to figure out who is ideally suited for this preferentially over slap repair. And, and hopefully we can talk about that a little bit further. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about that right now. Um, so what is your current preferred surgical technique for treating slap tears in overhead athletes, whether they be elite or recreational? Um, 
And has this study and your work changed your approach at all in your own practice, or did it simply confirm what you're already doing? And like you've mentioned a few times, I know uh, the evolution of this treatment has changed since you and I were residents. As you said, I remember a ABOS uh, frequency study showing the rates of slap repairs. I think back when we were doing our boards was, you know, it was at the peak and now it's, you know, regressed significantly. So has your practice kind of evolved with the times and does this uh, cohort kind of fall in line with that or has it changed your practice at all? What's it, what it's shown, I think, to me is is that this is a is a reasonable and serviceable option for some patients that are going to be more ideally suited for for a slap tear. Or I'm sorry, for a biceps tenodesis. Uh, in this patient population, we chose to isolate those individuals with a type 2A, which is uh, uh, suggesting a more anteriorly based uh, slap tear with involvement of the biceps anchor. In these patient population, in this patient population, we also uh, found individuals with a high preponderance of, of, of provocative bicep symptoms. And, and the discussion there is kind of difficult to tease out because it's hard to sometimes find out whether that's the primary problem or is that a secondary finding due to superior labral hypermobility. But in this patient population, uh, I really want to identify what they come in with in terms of symptomatic pain constellations, but then also structural pathology, including longitudinal splits, hypertrophy, hourglass deformity, that arthroscopic lipstick um, uh, sign, which is somewhat variable in its correlation with symptoms, any adjacent uh, cuff uh, pathology. Where it's possible, I do think debridement is probably your more safe approach to to management in the elite athlete. Less uh, motion constraining uh, interventions are ideal. With that said, if you start to see hypermobility, particularly involving the posterior superior aspect, you see excursion, kind of that uh, that that peel back uh, type of um, uh, dynamic movement at the time of arthroscopy, you see fibrillations underneath it, and, and uh, it's more posteriorly based, and it extends posteriorly kind of down into the um, uh, equator past that 10 o'clock position. That's still a group where I would consider preferentially um, performing a, a primary superior labral repair. As it relates to those more bad slap type of configurations, so those with poor tissue quality, those with splits extending into the biceps tendon, those that have really pronounced uh, positive O'Brien's dynamic label shear and, uh, and structural abnormalities into the sheath, I would probably lean more preferentially towards a uh, biceps tenodesis on them um, with some, some uh, heavy amount of crepe uh, being laid down. Now, in terms of the uh, slap repairs, uh, what we've seen is uh, a, a vast move away from the um, the knotted constructs and more towards knotless configurations. And then in my practice specifically, it's moved from a, a, a hard uh, suture anchor to a, a soft all suture anchor. It occupies much more limited surface area. It allows some uh, ability to be dynamic and being able to retention. And then also you can use uh, um, a smaller percutaneous uh, um, uh, uh, transmuscular um, 
anchor placement in order to really get to a very precise area on the glenoid and instrument without uh, uh, encompassing either the SGHL or some of the adjacent capsule. Uh, I still do uh, some of these in the beach chair and lateral decubitus position, uh, but I think it's really important to get the right diagnosis and uh, to try to repair it anatomically without over-constraining it, and then rehab is going to be critically important uh, moving forward in the post-operative period. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are wonderful pearls for approaching the uh, you know, broad and challenging topic of the slap tear in general. So I was hoping we could maybe diverge a little bit from the slap tear and on the topic of the overhead athlete. Um, I was hoping, Brian, you could speak to the work you're doing at your program with your pitching lab um, since it's related. I follow your updates. I see on social media. I was hoping you could maybe give us a little peek behind the curtain and share some insights into what your team's doing and what you're learning. Yeah, thanks for your interest on that, Chris. It's, it's certainly a passion of ours, and you know I'm uniquely positioned to be um, with a group that is so much more talented than me in this space. Um, we have a PhD biomechanist, uh, Kristen Nicholson, who's just a huge asset and helps to drive forward the initiatives of our lab. We have our pitching lab coordinator and, and Mike McFerrin. Um, we've got uh, a strength and conditioning coach, uh, our athletic trainer, and the entire Wake Forest baseball uh, team that's, that's behind our mission. And then we've also got big data uh, scientists and uh, thought leaders like Garrett Bullock, who's one of our PhDs on staff that helps to kind of hone some of our areas of research inquiry. Within this, we've really kind of targeted uh, what they have been able to, to, to do down in ASMI and uh, done with great success. And what we see is this epidemic of uh, youth and, and uh, adolescent baseball injuries, and, and that carries forward into adulthood and the highest levels. So we really see this as a, uh, as a tool for affecting change on, on the public health of the throwing community. It's a tool for, uh, to a certain extent, performance enhancement for our team. And then also uh, our ability to conduct really uh, peer-reviewed research and, and look at some of the objective nitty-gritty parameters that might predict the uh, development or recurrence of injury. It, it can facilitate these longitudinal assessments of uh, individuals that are returning from injury. And just like we use biodex testing and uh, um, you know drop-down testing in the lower extremity, this is just another um, a tool that we'll have available to us as we try to objectify when is it safe to return to sport. Uh, and so those are the broad ambitions of our lab. We have about 400 athletes that we've processed through, and uh, we've got state-of-the-art technology and uh, have developed affiliation with uh, upwards of 10 baseball clubs, as well as several international contingents. And, and so I'm just very, very fortunate to be part of our team and, and looking at some of this data critically and figure out what our next steps is with our collaborators. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, uh, Brian. It's exciting. It's cool to see some of the uh, some of the stuff that's put out there on your snippets uh, and such. So I'm, I look forward to seeing more and uh, and continuing to learn from y'all. You did reference a few limitations of your study in the paper. I wanted to recognize, though, how your work is helping to fill a knowledge gap in the management of slap tears, particularly in the overhead athlete. 
And along that train of thought, uh, I was hoping you could share with us what you think is currently still the most important unanswered question with respect to this topic. Uh, and what do you see as the most important next step for advancement in managing this ongoing debate? Yeah, we've certainly alluded to some gaps in our logic, and, and there's far from consensus on this topic. I think back to Pete Chalmers' uh, study looking at the major league and minor league baseball athletes and looking at their rates of, of uh, success after biceps tenodesis. And, and really, they showed remarkably um, uh, uh, mediocre uh, numbers. They reported 44% of individuals were able to return to uh, to play at an average of 10 months. And uh, uh, pitchers really encompassed a lot of the uh, source of failure there. Uh, there are several other studies that have looked at this critically. And um, I think it's incumbent upon us and in our community to, to really try to figure out which patients are ideally suited for superior labor repair, how we repair those, developing consensus. Is that a mattress? Is that a simple? Is that a knotless configuration? Where are our anchors placed? Should we place them anterior to the biceps anchor? Uh, how we should rehab them? Is that something where early range of motion would be advantageous? Are there any rules for biologic adjuncts to be placed at the interface, given the hypovascularity of the superior labrum? And then really how we better counsel our patients appropriately. Uh, as you know, uh, one of the, the, the best offenses is a good defense. And so if we could head these off at the pass, uh, I think that's our goal, and that's where the value of this biomechanical lab is is helpful for assessing in pitchers as well as other overhead athletes, such as softball, swim, volleyball, tennis, all of which have a high preponderance of uh, of slap tears. Um, but those would be kind of some of the next steps as we continue to look at our data critically and being honest in reporting um, even even these small clinical series like we have here today. Any other closing remarks before we close out? What I would hope that our study would bring to light is, is that uh, for the very carefully selected patients uh, with uh, slap tear, an unstable type 2A slap tear, that biceps tenodesis can be a reasonable option. While we want treating surgeons to exercise caution when treating these types of injuries in the elite and competitive overhead athlete with a symptomatic slap tear, we also want them to, to have a balanced discussion about what the potential treatment options are from slap repair to debridement to, to biceps tenodesis. And then also just making sure that individuals have, have failed a rigorous course of conservative treatment before undertaking a surgical treatment in what is a very fragile situation in the overhead athlete. Brian, I wanted to congratulate you again on your important work and thank you for sharing your time and your thoughts with us this evening. Chris, it's truly an honor and a longtime listener of the podcast. Keep doing all the great work. Appreciate that. Dr. Waterman's article titled High Rate of Return to Sporting Activity Among Overhead Athletes with Subpectoral Biceps Tenodesis for Type 2 Slap Tear is currently in press for the Arthroscopy Journal, which is available online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time.